This show may contain explicit language and or spoilers. Welcome to the Greatest Movie of All Time podcast. I'm Tom Duncan. And I'm Dana Duncan. Tonight we apply our patent-pending Stanley rubric to Aliens, currently streaming on HBO Max, including the extended edition, which I did not watch. But before we launch into this week's movie, next week we will be covering the John Wayne classic, The Quiet Man, directed by John Ford for St. Patrick's Day, currently available on Prime Video. You won't want to miss that one, so catch it on Prime Video before next week's show. Also, you can still sign up for our weekly newsletter either by the website in the show notes. You can subscribe at the bottom of every page. A shout out to Jen Mallory, who did that a few weeks back. You can also email us at greatestalltimemoviepodcast at gmail.com to subscribe, comment, or ask a question about the show. Finally, as Dad mentioned in a recent episode, we are going to be doing Comedy Month coming up here in April. Our first one is going to be Idiocracy that will be available for April Fool's Day. Then we are covering Caddyshack in time for the Masters, uh, the golf tournament in case you're in the international audience or just somebody who doesn't follow golf, which is probably about 95% of our audience, followed by Anchorman, Dodgeball, the true underdog story is our last one up for the month. So if you're a fan of comedies, this April is for you. And with that, we welcome back a returning guest and friend, the host of the Recruiting Hell podcast, and a professional podcast producer now at Sweetfish Media, the man, the myth, the legend, Rob Conlon. Hey, Tom and Dana, it is fantastic to be here. Thank you guys for having me back, and I cannot wait for this uh, conversation we're going to have tonight. I've been looking forward to this like since last week. I'm like, oh my gosh, I, I have an episode to record, record with the Duncans. This is this is happening again. Like, this is great. I'm just thrilled to be here, guys. It's great. Thank you again. And how have you been since we were our last head on? Uh, it's, it's been a, a bit of a wild spring or end of winter into spring. Uh, as you said in your little intro for me, I am now actually a professional podcast producer. I do that and it makes a living for me, which is awesome. Uh, I work for a company uh, that's out of Orlando, Florida. I work remote and all I do all day is produce other people's podcasts uh, in the business-to-business realm. It's a ton of fun. I've learned a ton. I've been able to teach my clients a ton. And uh, it's just such a great fit. And now, like, taking my hobby of, of, you know, running my own show about job hunting and actually turning it into a job, what a dream. And then also guesting and being a part of shows like this, I'm thrilled. As we're recording this, I'm on literally my, like, fifth hour of podcasting today. It's awesome. Way to get that podcast rain, as our mutual friend would yes, say. Yes, yes, the mayor. <laughs> yes, I had a quick shout out to Podcast Town and the community over there, which we're both founding members of. Uh, if you'd like to join that, it is community.podcasttown.net. Uh, all right. So it has been a while since we had you on to cover the original Alien franchise, and this journey with you started last July when you asked me the question, Alien versus Aliens, where do you stand? So are you ready for me to finally answer the question of that debate? I certainly am, sir. Absolutely. Dad, I can say for myself, I had no relationship to these movies in advance of the show. If the audience wants to refresh their memories on Rob's growing up with this franchise, I will refer you back to episode 38, Alien. 
But did you have any relationship to this movie in particular before this week? Uh, no, not really. I think I had seen bits and pieces of it. Um, I, as I've commented to various people, about 1984 to 1989, I have this gap in my life. It was called the last two years of college and three years of law school. And that's <laughs> I just lived in a library and never did anything except drink to relax. And that's it. And um, so movies and uh, doing that things were not poorly in our classicness category, by the way. <laughs> yeah. No, so I, I did not. I, I Like I said, I think I'd seen bits and pieces of this, was familiar with it, but um, no, never had any other real relationship with the movie. And Rob, I know this is one of your all-time favorites, the one that you kind of go back to, but give a refresher for the audience why this has such a personal stake for you. Sure. It's, a, it's actually a funny thing because it, it stems directly from my folks. And when I was a teenager, I just wanted to you know, do the quick recap. You want to hear the full story, episode 38, like you said. But basically, my folks told me that this was a really scary movie when I saw it at uh, Disney's Hollywood Studios, which at the time was called MGM Studios. And this big black creature is popping out of the thing. And I'm like, what's this movie about? Well, they saw it in 1979. My mom thought it was hilarious because of a certain scene. My dad thought it was pretty terrifying. Like, and so I wanted to see this movie that they both talked about that the, the creature had popped out at me at Disney Disney World at, and it had such a great impact because when I discovered this movie, it was so thematic and it had a universe built around it because I discovered this movie probably, let's see, this is in 86, I believe. I was maybe 13, 14, 15 years old, somewhere in that, like around the year 2000 mark. And... All of this other stuff, this lore had been built up around the Aliens universe. You know, there's comic books, there's the colonial technical manuals that go into like the ships and things like that. And I saw this, and of course, you're a teenage guy, like, this is so cool. It's aliens in space, and you know, the Marines are there, and everything like that. It's, I loved this movie. This was so, so formative for me because it was also on cable TV all the time. The three, the the two of the three of them, uh, aliens, aliens, and Alien Three, always on the Sci-Fi Channel. And unfortunately, for your you know your listeners are going to hear this again from episode thirty-eight. But I saw them in like out of order: Alien Three first, then Alien, and then Aliens. And Alien Three is kind of awful. <laughs> it's, Even David Fincher would apologize for that. I one. know, I know, and it's it's like it has so many bits of greatness, but it's not stitched together right, if you will. And this is the last one. Aliens is the last one I saw of the, the original three trilogy. And when I saw it for the first time, it was so different from the really, really good original. But it's so amazing in its own way. And that it has set itself off from its much more suspense-driven cousin or brother, if you will, I should say. So that's my relationship with the movie. All right. To take you behind the scenes then, uh, Dad, do you have – a plot summary ready for us or maybe it's better to call it a premise for you all right a 1986 science fiction action horror film directed by james cameron lieutenant ellen ripley played by sigourney weaver uh reprises her role from alien and is found 57 years later floating in space after going through a review she is approached about going back to the uh, location of her encounter with the aliens. 
with a group of Marines to investigate the lost contact with a colony. The Marines, upon their arrival, soon realize they're outmatched. They find a young girl who has, or has survived the trauma or traumatic experience by the colonists. The Marines and Ripley do their best to survive, but must fight off multiple aliens and the company man, Burke, played by Paul Reiser. Recognition for this movie, nominated for Best Actress for Sigourney Weaver, Art Director, Editing, Sound, and Original Score. It won for Best Visual Effects and Sound Effects Editing at the Oscars. The claim has been made that Aliens belongs among the greatest films, and it is one of the best science fiction action and sequel films. In 2008, Empire ranked it 30th on the magazine's 500 Greatest Movies of All Time list. Ellen Ripley has been recognized. The American Film Institute ranked her the eighth most heroic character on its 2003 100 Years 100 Heroes and Villains list, and she was ninth on Empire's 2006 100 Greatest Movie Characters list. Aliens is considered one of the best sequels of all time, equal to or better than Alien. According to Slant Magazine, it exceeded Alien in every way. Den of Geek called it the best blockbuster sequel ever made and remarkable even as a standalone film. In 2017, the website ranked it the second best film in the series behind Alien. In 2011, Empire called it the greatest movie sequel ever. All right. Did you know, like most films, the movie wasn't shot in sequence, but for added realism, James Cameron filmed the scene where we first meet the Colonial Marines, one of the earliest scenes, last. This was so that the camaraderie of the Marines was realistic because the actors had spent months filming together. According to Bill Paxton, he improvised many of his lines, including, Game over, man! Game over! His famous line, we're on an express elevator to hell going down, was probably improvised as well as it doesn't appear in the shooting script. Al Matthews, who plays a Marine sergeant in the film, was in real life the first black Marine to be promoted to the rank of sergeant in the field during service in Vietnam. Bill Paxton continuously apologized to Carrie Henn throughout filming every time Hudson had to swear in front of her. Carrie later admitted that she didn't mind, mainly because she didn't really know what any of the words meant. One of the alien eggs used in the film is now exhibited in the Smithsonian Institute in Washington, D.C. All right. So we've kind of adapted this category since you were last on, Rob. But what is this movie about slash the elevator pitch? I think it's the elevator pitch for this movie is that you you have something that you know is a powerful force. And it's going up against something that has no idea of what it's it's against. You know, these Marines are coming in to Hadley's Hope and they're they're going in guns blazing. But they are so horrifically outmatched that watching them survive is the adventure in this movie. And I really think that if you want to see a very visceral, a very engaging movie, this is the one to really look into when it comes to watching something. some folks who thought they were going to win. Not quite that case. Dan, how would you elevator pitch this movie? Return to the scene of the pro, or the previous crime. Going back to uh, uh, yet again try to uh, bring these creatures back. I mean, the villain in this whole thing is Burke. And he's yet again trying to bring these creatures back for the company to make a profit off of them. And it ultimately is the demise of multiple lives. For me, I focused on a different aspect in order to do my elevator pitch. 
it's the last survivor of the Nostromo going back to save the last survivor of the colony. All of the action and the emotion, especially in the last part of the movie, revolves around Ripley's connection to Newt. And ultimately, that has to do with they're both the last survivors of something incredibly tragic and horrifying. Good point. All right. So let's move right into best performance. Uh, Dad, who did you have down? Uh, Sigourney Weaver. I thought she uh, yet again held the entire cast together. She was the center. She pretty much was the only actor who was able to stand against the aliens themselves because ultimately the aliens are in and of themselves a character. It was almost like you were just waiting for the next tragedy to happen to the to the Marines and to the crew. But somehow you knew as long as she was there, she was going to ultimately prevail. I had no faith in the Marines. I had every faith in her. And I think that's a great level of skill by her doing a performance that was both vulnerable and yet strong at the same time. I also had down Weaver, but who did you have, Rob? I went with Carrie Hen, who played Newt, because terror, timidity, and the need for Ripley slash mom from a little girl who had only one movie role. This was her only role in her career. And I really think she played this terrified little girl who has seen, I mean, some of the freakiest shit the universe has to throw it. Like, if you or I saw that stuff, man, we would be just losing our straight up minds. And she plays it like this little kid that has has been so resilient. And she she really wants to reach out to like, mom she needs mom she needs an adult she needs somebody to love her and care for her and protect her from these monsters that are running around and she finds it in weaver and i really think that the the bond between those two actresses uh especially from from carrie's side is possibly the best performance in the movie all right so best secondary performance i had james cameron uh i i do think that this put him on another level if you read a lot of the background notes He had probably one of the most difficult shoots he's ever been a part of. Uh, He famously said that he uh, loved Pinewood Studios only enough to the point that he could leave it, and he has never gone back since because he was filming in England. None of them seemed to have watched uh, the Terminator movie and thus didn't respect him as a critical director for a franchise movie. And because of all the problems that he had surrounding it, But then you take on this. I I don't think we give enough credit, especially because we're so sequel overloaded in a current sense. Uh, Everything is a sequel or a franchise or something else right now. How incredibly difficult it is to build on an original concept, especially one that didn't go in with the idea that it was going to ever be sequelized or franchised. And not only to take this, I think there's a simple brilliance in the naming of the movie. I always thought it was weird that you had alien and aliens, but you think about it. What's the natural conclusion of expanding the universe? You go from one alien in a enclosed setting to open world, more aliens to the point where we get the biggest, baddest alien at the end that they have to kill or destroy in order to, to survive. 
you're basically taking the Fast and Furious formula of one-upping yourself from the previous movie, but this did it 30 years before that and before it was cliche or cool. And so I think he gets so much credit, at least from me, because this was not the James Cameron that had done Avatar or Titanic where we'd give him more leeway. This is the guy making himself into what he eventually would become with T2 and Titanic and Avatar, etc. The atmosphere and everything like that, I really do think you have a great point with there, there, Tom, about how James Cameron, though he's not necessarily a character, gave a great performance as well. Um, I said Ripley and uh, Sigourney, Re- Sigourney Weaver for this category. Again, she's very much so in the top there, but I think James Cameron is a very astute nomination, sir. All right. Uh, Dad, who did you have down as best secondary? Cameron. And this is why it's a little different than yours. Okay. When watching this, this is 35 years old. And the direction and the CGI and everything about this looked good yet 35 years later. The fact that the director could tie everything together and make it believable in 4k which is what i was watching it in oh wow and make it look good and still 35 years later do it was a i think that's a a sign of brilliance of forethought of where things will be instead of just doing them as they were at that time i think he foreshadowed the fact that he was going to be able to do things on cutting edge of technology that other directors were Uh, going to have to catch up to him to do. But you think back on our first overall episode, we had a long discussion on how poorly the special effects at the end of Raiders of the Lost Ark looked when they get those ghosts coming out of the uh, Ark of the Covenant and how wonky they are in, you know, 2021, you know, 30, 40 years later. And this, I would agree, has not aged poorly at all. The practical effects, the sets, the rest of it somehow still holds up and so that will come around in our classicness score at least for me so you don't like melting wax dummies in raider of the lost Lost ark i was more concerned with the um ghosts that looked like um they were really terrible drawings like the the phantoms or whatever was coming out of it it just looks so hokey like everything else about that movie is fine as far as I'm concerned. Spielberg has always done well with the practical effects. Like I think Jaws for the most part holds up as far as the classicness on the effects Jaws and the rest. Jaws scary. But let uh, me just let me inter- interject an anecdote. I happened to be at NBC Studios and Rockefeller Center at, at 30 Rock when they were converting over from analog television to HD. And so I got to go in and see Dateline, the studio, as part of the tour. And the set for Dateline in analog, we did better sets in high school theater. It was plywood spray painted with flat black with fluorescent bulbs drilled into them. It was atrocious. And then they took us into the new studio that was being built because they said, we didn't need to worry about it. Analog never picked up anything. HD picks up everything. And so everything had to be perfect. And so that's ultimately where we're seeing problems with some of this. If 
you as a director or as a cinematographer are thinking things through what's going to happen in the future are you going to be happy with you know a a black piece of plywood or are you going to be trying to build a set that looks real uh, so that it transitions into higher def film and broadcasting it's a good open-ended question all right most charismatic uh this is where i went carrie hen I, I think she has a innocence or goodness that you already mentioned, Rob, and a certain level of spunk to her that kind of drives a lot of what Ripley's actions become, especially in the second half of the movie. And the most important part about it is if we didn't come to love her, you would not have the same emotional resonance there. And I think you kind of got got to this point a, a minute ago, but that would make the last act so meaningful. So I give her the most charismatic. But what did you have down, Rob? Everybody's favorite drill sergeant, Al Matthews. Every formation, a parade, every every meal, a banquet. I love the core. <laughs> Which, it's funny because he is actually the inspiration for the Halo series, uh, Sergeant Avery Johnson as well. So that is is something that's you know still very resonant in pop culture. But I thought Al Matthews killed that role as just a hard-ass, like, here we are, you guys better listen to me. You're a bunch of tough people, but I am tougher than all of you. I will break all of you. And actually, I, re- I read from one of the trivia things uh, from, I think, IMDb, that he had actually got a little bit of training from R. Lee Ermey in order to uh, to make his uh, drill drill sergeantness a little bit more uh, more authentic. And, of course, the man had had served in, uh, in Vietnam and things like that, so I'm sure he was already excellent. But maybe peppering a little bit of that Ermey extra flavor in there you know <laughs> and it, full metal it's jacket funny, style it's funny that you mentioned that they were filming at the exact same time at the exact same <laughs> yeah. location so they actually uh shared like i guess behind the scenes areas and would actually uh mix as a cast uh to share you know meals or whatever else was going on so it would make sense that he would have talked to ermy and gotten some tips while that filming was going on all right, before we get to Dad's Most Charismatic, I'm going to nominate a new category only for this episode, the mo- our Least Charismatic Person or Character Award, and I'm going to give that to Bill Paxton. Words cannot express how annoyed I was with his character and his dude-bro attitude that just, ugh, ugh. I know everybody loves him. I know this is a controversial opinion. But I could not stand Bill Paxton's character. A hot take, bro. <laughs> I know, especially because I actually like Bill Paxton. May he rest in peace. Oh, yeah. yeah he's dead too. <laughs> well, if you're gonna go that route, I I, I give it to Paul Reiser. I, I would put him on my list of most likely to be punched in the face. Thank you, Dana. Preach. The whole movie, I kept watching Paul Reiser and going, "I'm mad about you." that's great you wrote that joke down didn't you you wanted to make sure that you had that one in there i didn't write it down but i had a mental note so who was your most charismatic than dead the aliens uh like i said the aliens themselves were uh just they they took over every scene they were in i mean they were terrifying they uh even in death, you know, the fact that they're dying, they're spewing acid all over everybody. I mean, it's just 
you're every every scene you're waiting for them to pop out of a wall or a floor or a ceiling and uh i i just they had a a life onto their own to me that's that says charisma we had this debate a few weeks ago about what is charisma at robin tom didn't think that you could have negative charisma and i pointed out hitler that's fair that's totally fair I don't think it's the prime example of what you're going for, but I do understand what you mean. It it is, and we've kind of expanded the character as a result of that, or not the character, but the category, of dominating a scene or what the eye is drawn to. I think that defines charisma, and that can even be done in a negative way. So I, I acquiesce a bit to the argument. Let's jump to best scene then. Uh, Rob, do you want to go first? This is your movie. Absolutely, because I get to I get to pick the best one. I get to pick this the second you see Queenie. She is horrifying and wild and vile and disgusting and just tremendously repulsive. Everything from the ovipositor to her like her face is just terrifying. And, you know, the crown and everything like that, you know, that she is the queen and, you know, the aliens have these uh, tubular heads, but she has this magnificent, almost like, it's not quite like a a rack of antlers, but her head is so much more grandiose than the aliens. And she's just this giant bundle of awe and horror and, and just awfulness. And I really think she steals the show pretty much. So in the first movie that we talked about, so again, episode 38, we talked a lot about suspense and kind of comparing it to Hitchcock. There aren't a lot of huge, really slow played suspense moments like the original one, save for this one thing. When all of a sudden you pan back and all the eggs are there that she somehow run into these. And uh, that was literally you start turning around and you realize what's going to happen. And that was when I audibly said, oh, fuck. <laughs> That's great. Because it, it is, I mean, th- that scene is so grotesque. Like, if you've, if you've not seen anything like that before or, or anything resembling it before, it's mind-blowing how realistic she is almost. And Dana, this is back to your point of stuff looking really good in HD because... As far as I'm concerned, every time I watch that, that thing is breathing and living and crawling around on my TV. It's awful. I could handle it up to this point. It was after that moment I'm like, this would creep me out if uh, not for I've seen a lot of grotesque things already. And I know kind of where this is heading. Like if I was an eight-year-old kid, a 10-year-old kid, whatever, I would not sleep for weeks. That that scene is just... it's it's almost you know in the 35 years since the movie's been made there's been so much other you know like fangoria you know these gore fest movies you know Mm -hmm. where people are split apart and things like that and you know we see weird aliens and things along those lines but this was almost one of the first i i would i would have to say you know yes we talk about the original alien where it's the first alien where it's not it's not looking, you know, sort of 50 sci-fi, you know, oh, it's the creepy alien is going to come get you, the blob. Uh, but it's one of those things where she is such an original creation 
that I think that it really adds something to this movie of just a grotesqueness that is so amazing. Yes, this was a great scene and whatever, but to some extent I was prepared for it because I've been in the birthing room three times. <laughs> so uh, what's your I, first nominee? Uh, the uh, scene where they're trying or where Burke is continuing to lock uh, Ripley out and trying to prevent or cause her to die so that he can try to manipulate getting back with one of the aliens. And then ultimately the cheering moment when the alien gets him. Those are really kind of two different scenes though. But it's one continuous aspect. First, when they're, when uh, Ripley and Newt are trapped in the room and trying to get out and the alien is in there and you know, Burke did that cause that problem. And then the try to escape, it seems like it's more or less tied. It's two scenes, but it's tied, and it's one long time where Burke is uh, pulling his shenanigans. All right, so my first one. I don't usually go with the first. I try and save the best for last, but I'm going to go with meeting the Marines. I think there was a, a jovialness to trying to introduce the characters, but they do it very subtly through how they're acting as opposed to explaining. They don't do that, like, I know that some people have named it the file scene. Like, that would be the normal trope in a modern movie where you'd get, like, a computer screen and everybody's bio. And so, okay, this characteristic is here, and this guy is uh, terrifying because he came from this background, and most of the time that's just cliche and uninteresting. They did a lot better world building by showing you them in the natural state or environment interacting with each other. Again, we take back to the did you know and Cameron doing it last so that there's a camaraderie element to it. I just enjoyed the craftsmanship of setting up exactly how these people interacted. So when they were a squad, that there was some meaningfulness behind it. All right, Rob, I think it's your turn. Uh, you know, if I have to pick another one that's kind of my favorite, it's it's when, well, actually not my favorite, but the best scene. I really like when they're grilling Ripley at, at the at the beginning, when she's in and like the Wayland Yutani execs and everything are there, and they're they're she's trying to deal with the culture shock of being uh, frozen in space for fifty seven years and realizing that her daughter is dead and that everybody she probably knew is dead, and I really think that if there's this almost delightfully awful dichotomy of she's here and they're they're debriefing her and they don't care like this woman is going through so much grief and and agony and like yeah your daughter's dead she died like 10 years ago and the, the wheel of yutani guys just don't give a shit they're like and, and tell us more about these weapon creatures please and and you go get some for us right it, it's such a it's such a gross mismatch of empathy and emotional intelligence and things like it's it's if it wasn't so awful, it'd be kind of funny. But I really think it's it's a great scene because it it plays on Sigourney Weaver's ability to draw on that that vulnerable side of the character of Ripley and say, but also the strength side of it. And you know she's going through all of this stuff up here in her mind, but she's still telling these guys to go you know walk off a bridge because she's not going to go find those xenomorphs. Oddly enough, for this being the pro-America Reagan beat our chess era, 
there are a lot of anti-capitalist movies, and I think that's a moment where you could say this is an anti-capitalist movie. Potentially, yes. I think so. It's kind of funny. I never thought of it that way. All right. Uh, Dan, I think you're up next. The scene finding Newt. That's that's the that's the point of the movie where you're thinking, all right, this child was able to survive. Somehow there's hope for them getting out of this <laughs> because if she can survive, they'll figure out a way to survive. And so to me, that was a. All right, I'm going to go with the med lab. Uh, I you've kind of alluded to it already, uh, Dad, but I, I want to go a little bit more in depth on that one in particular. You know, they, Newt and um, Ripley are waking up. They realize that the, I guess the technical term is face huggers, are out of the cage or out of the case and have the ability to basically, as it is implied, well, clearly stated in the movie, impregnate them, but they can't get help and Burke is trying to purposefully lock them out in the ingenious way at the end that they figure out how to escape or set off an alarm. But there, I think if you could point to one scene as, I guess, thrilling or suspenseful outside of the hive, that would be kind of it for me because the other ones are really action driven. So most of the other sequences have a lot of either shooting or explosions or other things. And yes, that adds to the intensity level, but there's not one that is done subtly without a ton of violence attached to it other than this scene that you don't always have to make every scene about intense levels of violence or in or constant action in order to still drive a thrilling movie and so i i like the staggering of the emotional resonance without losing the pacing and the feel of it while still driving the story forward i i just again it's it's kind of a craftsmanship scene as far as I'm concerned. All right, Rob, you have any others? The power loader fight in the docking bay when the queen has uh, latched on and sort of stowed away and is eventually, you know, kind of planning her revenge on, on Ripley. And it's, it's sort of this, it's like a Godzilla movie kind of shrunk down, which is kind of cool. But again, the special effects, the, the creature effects and, you know, snapping jaws right in her face, through the guards of the power loader. Uh, I also think it was a great uh, scene that it ties back to an earlier one where they ask Sigourney Weaver and as Ripley, you know, do you know how to drive one of those things? And she's like, uh, duh. <laughs> it's kind of funny. You know, we talk a lot about, you know, it's just women, international women's day uh, on Monday. And we talk a lot about equality and things like that. Uh, sometimes when it comes to making sure that a lot of professions and things like that are multi, you know, are, are for both, both sides of the coin there. And I think that seeing Sigourney Weaver kick some ass against this monster alien with some, you know, some power armor basically was a really great scene. And again, the the creature effects, the the ability to take this thing that is a puppet and make it do realistic combat with a, you know, this this power loader that again is this giant suit prop. I really think it was something that was uh, not only just a great scene, and again, one of my, uh, probably my favorite scene of the entire thing next to, you know, seeing Queenie for the first time, but I think it really gets you that kind of like, yeah, yeah, kind of thing at the end of the movie where it's like, you know what? Girls rule. 
everything from the surprise when they get off of the drop ship you, ship you see the acid burn on the deck and all and then yep. that just absolutely surprise where you had the chest burster in the in the first one this one you have the tail go right through bishop and just yep. absolutely rip him apart Bisexed and you him, yep. just don't see it coming if you've never seen it before that was my experience this morning and then you know, even down to what may be, for a lot of people, the most indelible moment, get away from her, you bitch. You got it, man. And that, Such like... Such a great line. You know, you don't even think... Honestly, to me, it doesn't even feel like it's a, a girl empowerment. It's just a badass action character that's just stepping into the limelight and, all right, I'm taking you on full force and you're not going to win, you know, type of thing. I'm protecting... I'm going to beat the shit out of you. It's time to go. Let's rumble. Dan, do you have any more? No. No, I really don't. There were a lot of other scenes that I liked that I thought were good, but not not really that I want to get into, I guess. All right, so Rob, you already had your favorite. Dad, what was your favorite scene? The queen and the egg laying. I just really thought that was great. Um, they foreshadowed it earlier, like where the these eggs are coming from, and then all of a sudden now you find out, and it's visually just, you know, you're like almost like slack jawed. Wow. <laughs> uh, for me, the favorite was it, it's the final battle. I, I think it's the epic conclusion, and while I may have a few unanswerable or open-ended questions that we're going to ask at the end. There are some problems with the science, clearly, but ultimately I, I think it is a thrilling conclusion to the movie, even if it has some minor flaws, and I I, I still think that that is uh, exactly where the movie wanted to end. It's, it's I love movies that start well and end well, and I would say this had a bit of a slow start because it has to transition away from the original and give you a place, even though I can enjoy the craftsmanship. But this had a fairly fitting ending for especially everywhere that it was driving to that point. Rob, most indelible moment. I think it's when they realize that they're screwed. Game over, man. Game over. I think that is the, it could almost be the tagline for the movie, almost. Uh, But it's one of those things where it's, I mean, the characters have the realization that we're not in Kansas anymore, if you will, and there's a big problem and we're all going to die. Like, we are outgunned, we are outmatched, we don't have the numbers, we don't have anything to our advantage here. We have to run for our lives. It certainly could be the tagline of every video game series that has been developed off of this. (laughs) Yeah, no kidding. They suck. (laughs) Uh, all right, Dad, your most indelible moment. I I think it's still the uh, seat last scene or the scene that I thought was my favorite, which is the egg laying, because that's the scene that I'm going to take. I, I mean, the climax or the climax. Yes, I'll remember that. But just the seeing of the queen with the eggs. And I, to me, that's that's a scene that I'll remember for a long, long time. I think I need to maybe change the wording of this category because of how I've done it lately, but I think of it almost more as most indelible as opposed to most indelible moment because I picked the Queen Xenomorph. I think that, as a character, 
is the thing that sticks out to me because it's not necessarily one particular moment or scene. It's just the overall of her just thrashing, chasing down that final sequence, the hive, everything from when she comes on until she is propelled through the airlock. Spoilers for anyone who has been following up to this point, but I would have hoped you would have watched the movie already. Everything about it is indelible to me as the thing that sticks out. Before we get into best lines, we'll take a quick break for one of our sponsors and be right back. And now I want to tell you about Anchor. If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. Let me explain. It gives you smart creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone, tablet, or computer and helps you distribute them to all the major platforms like Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, and more. Plus, they help to hook you up with sponsorships like this one, no matter the listener size, which will help help you fund your podcast. And best yet, it's free to use. Look, if you've ever had an itch to talk and express yourself about a topic you like, there is no better time than 2020 to do so. I've started two podcasts this year alone, including this one, and we use Anchor for each and every episode. So what do you have to lose? Download the free Anchor app and or go to anchor.fm to get started making your own podcast today. All right, we are back. Uh, but before we get to best lines, Dad, did we have any in memoriams this week? We did not. I checked and really didn't find anything of any significance, which is a good thing. I just wanted to mention, don't tempt fate, because we're recording this the day before the one-year anniversary of Tom Hanks announcing he had COVID, so oh, things right. can change very, very quickly. Let's, let's, let's not try and go there, if, if we can. But at least for this week, thankfully, nobody that we have a... Uh, relationship with on screen has uh, passed away so let's move on to best lines rob again i will defer to you this is your film gotcha best line probably one of the creepiest ones in the movie they come at night mostly like newt has seen some shit man like poor little girl they come at night mostly which means these things are creeping around all the freaking time and this poor little girl is running for her life and, and just like, I can't imagine. I mean, she's what, eight, nine, somewhere in there. Like I have, I have a young niece. She's, she's turning five, but and she's a great kid. Love that kid. Uh, but like, I can't imagine her being like three or four years older and then just being placed in this situation where she's never safe. And I think that the, they come at night mostly really illustrates that this poor girl has been living in this situation for, months where it could be any moment that one of these things just pops out and grabs her and, and eats her or, or does worse. You know, like I really think it encapsulates the, the horror aspect of the the film perfectly. And they leave it on such a, a hanging note with the way they cut the scene so that you get the outside view and the, the moon overhead and all yeah. of that. And so it adds to the level of, I guess, ambiance of that line just hanging out mm-hmm. there. Great delivery. Yep. Dan, by, a ni- by a nine-year-old. By a nine-year-old. During the debriefing, Ripley, did IQs just drop sharply while I was away? I put that in funniest lines. <laughs> I, I, yeah, I, uh, good candidate funniest. I, I like it too, though. Dad won't appreciate this one, but Carter Burke, I made a bad call. <laughs> Rob, you're up. Uh, you know, I, I think you have to, 
I don't want to go so much with like the game over game over man because I think that's it has its place, but I don't think it's one of the best. If I if I have to go back, it's probably back to Al Matthews with the his ex, expounding upon the glory of the Colonial Marines. You know, every bank, every uh, formation of uh, parade, every banquet or every meal of banquets. You know, I love the Corps. You know, that whole just energy behind it, I really think is just outstanding, and it's. It's fun. It, it almost gets you into the, this movie is not what I would call like a fun romp, but at the same time, you know, like some action movies, oh yeah, they're kind of like a little bit of a a ride and, and stuff like that. And this, this adds kind of something to that, but there's also so many factors that sort of temper that into something that is much more than just this nonstop stuff as much action into the movie as we can and, and choke people on action, on bullets and explosions, you know? Absolutely. Dad, you're up. Uh, Ripley, I say we take off and nuke the entire site from orbit. That's, That's the only way to be sure. That was one of my next ones up, too. Good deal, mine, I, too. Yeah, absolutely. Rob, I'm surprised I got to this one before you. God damn it, that's not all, because if one of those things gets down here, then that will be all. Then all this, this bullshit that you think is so important, you can just kiss all that goodbye. That's a good one. It is a very good one. It, it actually did not make my list, though. I'll tell you that. Interesting. Yeah. So what else made your list? Dad, did you have any others? Get away from her, you bitch. Yeah. Oh, that, been, I, I should have put one. that one in there. That was, uh, I totally missed that because we were talking about it earlier. <laughs> that, that's the full actualized hero line. Yeah, because I had yes. it written in my, in my notes here for the power loader fight, and I didn't say it, and then you said it, Tom, and it's like, oh, yeah. <laughs> It's her version of Hasta La Vista. Yeah, totally. Totally. All right. So funniest line, uh, I had, game over, man. Game over. Because, yeah, okay. We got through that one. We all experienced it. Let's move on. All right, Rob, what did you have for funniest line? You ever been mistaken for a man, Vasquez? No, have you? (laughs) (laughs) I think that one's just great. Because it it just shows that, that almost sibling bond that these these fighters have with each other and of course Vasquez being another uh very strong feminine character you know she's walking around with one of those smart guns on her and apparently you know I looked in the the show notes uh for show notes <laughs> I produced too many podcasts uh I looked in the like trivia notes for this and apparently those were were camera rigs with like 30 pound prop guns on them and they the actors had to be actually strapped into these things every day because they were so dang heavy, like 70 pound gun rig, like crazy. <laughs> and again, you know, the actress who plays Vasquez, she's not a, not a strapping human, human being or individual, but I think she played up this badass Marine that could hang with her male counterparts really well and didn't take, didn't take any shit from them or broke any arguments for most of them. All right, dad, do you have any funniest lines? The one I said earlier, did IQs drop sharply while I was away? (laughs) I I, want to say that line so many times when I'm in a hearing or when I'm at a political meeting or when I am having uh, an extended family dinner. (laughs) All right. So I only had one other nominee. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you've been keeping up on current events, but we just got our asses kicked, pal. You've completed my list with that, sir. Ted, did you have any others? No. All right. So let's move into the Stanley rubric, gentlemen. 
first one up, Legacy. Rob, I defer to you again. Sure. Where do you want to start? Uh, I think that this has a tremendous legacy. This movie is, I'm going to go with a 9.5 because for the past 35 years, people have thought about this as the quintessential action movie. If you think about the 1980s, what are the movies that come to mind? It's Terminator, it's Predator, and it's this one. And that's, each of them is is an action movie in its own right, but this one is the truly almost pure blood action movie. It is, you know, Predator sort of has those slow scenes and Terminator 2, or Terminator original has that, you know, exposition and things like that. Sorry, Terminator 2 is the 90s. But this is the only, I think, thoroughbred, 100% well done, amazing Oscar winning action movie of the 1980s because it is so, it's it's so influential even to today. I mean, you see it in video game franchises today, as I mentioned earlier. The Halo series has a ton of influence from uh, from Aliens. The Metroid series for, for Nintendo also has a ton because Metroids are basically alien. <laughs> That's the thing. And they, even in one of the games, you run into a queen Metroid. Like, it's the legacy of this movie that has built over the past 35 years has survived, thrived, and dare I say, laid eggs in pop culture. Uh, I I don't think it's a coincidence that two of the movies that you mentioned uh, featured Arnold Schwarzenegger. Two of them were directed by James Cameron, and all three of them killed Bill Paxton. Yeah, that's a good <laughs> trivia question. You know, who's the only actor to have been killed by a Terminator, a Predator, and an alien? And it's Bill Paxton. <laughs> Bill Paxton. That is so great. Yeah, I remember seeing that. I had down a 9.5 as well. I couldn't decide between a 9 or a 10, so I simply just split the difference. But this created a franchise. I don't think you would have said that from the first movie because they weren't in franchise mode yet. Mm -hmm. This really expanded the universe. And I think a lot of the reading I've done on this, and it kind of surprises me how little I knew about the series or connection I felt to it by the testimonials of how many people think this is an important sequel to the history of sequels. Now I wouldn't put it necessarily. I personally think the most important sequel in the history of cinema is empire strikes back. Thank you. That's not a hot take. That's, that's a fairly common opinion, but this is coming somewhat off of the heels of that. And this is really before we got to the sequelized nature of things. Terminator two wouldn't happen for another six years. Mm -hmm. And, you know, some of the other big sequels that were coming, even like a, a Ghostbusters 2 didn't come out until like the early to mid 90s, if I remember right. Not that it was any good, but still like some of the best movies were never made to be sequelized like they are now. So I think in a way this has an effect on teaching Hollywood the property of sequelized film franchises and kind of the modern impact on that. But you then look at the toys, the further movies, the video games, and the fact that, and you and I have talked about this offline, Rob, since we did the first podcast, but now there is going to be an FX series uh, coming from Ridley Scott and Noah Hawley, who did the Fargo series for FX. And I'm very curious to see what they're going to do with that, because, again, now that FX is owned by Disney... They're trying to turn their IP into something that's really going to drive further content. Disney does it in other means. 
where they don't always put the Disney brand on everything, but they are very much about sequels, franchises, and driving IP in the current environment, and nobody really competes with them. So I think this is going to be an interesting series, and I'm really curious to see where they go with it, especially bringing back the original architect, Ridley Scott. But you also have to put that the one of the premier modern filmmakers, at least franchise filmmakers, put his name together because of this movie. James Cameron is not James Cameron if he doesn't make this movie. Yes, Terminator was big, but he probably doesn't get Judgment Day or and then subsequently Titanic or Avatar and get the leeway of that had this not been a bigger movie. So I think that put him on the map as well, and for that reason I give it a 9.5. Dad, what did you have done? For many of the same reasons you did, I, I gave it a 9 and the only reason I, I marked it down a little bit is because it was one of multiple films that came out in the 80s that all kind of did it. But it still had a significant impact on James Cameron's career, on the fact that uh, sci-fi could be both horror and action. Yeah. It wasn't just Hell 6 or... It's the Hell 9000 from yeah, 2001, 000, yeah. A Space Odyssey. So to that extent, yes, I, I marked it down just a bit because of the sheer number that came out during that time frame of a similar mindset or similar ilk. That's fair. I, I, I can't give you too much crap for that. And that's kind of where I built out on impact significance. So I gave that an 8.5. And I, I again, I was really trying to pick this apart a bit because this is a little bit more complicated. It was the seventh biggest movie of that year, but it was outdone by some other big, let's say box office blockbuster movies. You know, Top Gun was above that. Ferris Bueller, I believe was above that. So it it wasn't like it was the movie. Yes, it was at number one during the middle of the summer and for at least four to five weeks. So I can't put too much on it from a, a box office standpoint. It also, again, helped elevate Cameron, but he didn't make T2 until more than the five-year period that we normally associate with impact significance. Uh, he made another movie that I honestly have never even heard of, so it, it, I can't even put it on that level. And it, it was innovative in a lot of other ways. So score, you can see the score through line in a lot of other late action or late 80s action movies. It affected a lot of the actions, or excuse me, it uh, affected any of the writing and depiction of aliens against a soldier crew that we now find kind of cliche and redone to death. And again, it made sequels more of a possibility, uh, especially after we already had Empire to draw back on. Now we have another successful or successful sequel to build a franchise upon i think all of those factor into it but i i went with an 8.5 uh rob what did you have down yeah and for a lot of the same reasons you did tom um i think that there's there's a lot of significance from this movie uh not only the short term but also again sort of long term as we, we discussed in the legacy uh portion i give it a nine i give it a nine on this because you're right it is one of the first truly successful sci-fi sequels aside from Empire Strikes Back, and it, again, shows that sequelization. But I think the real impact is that it showed that that you could do horror really well when mixed with action, and you could do it so that these 
practical special effects that you use are so whoa that people do a double take and it's it's the indelible moment of the movie where you see the queen alien and she's grosser than anything you've ever seen it, it, she's mind-blowingly awful and honestly I, I don't think that that for like size of puppetry i would i would challenge us to find a movie in the past 35 years that has used as significant practical effects aside from maybe jurassic park to model monsters i i have a hard time coming up with one i'm trying to think off the top of my head when you put that last part like there are some very good practical effects movies that are big action set pieces i Frankly, I think that's basically what Christopher Nolan has built the last, I don't know, 15 years of his career on. But I can't say that there are quote unquote monster movies that are purely practical and not CGI. Right. And and that's the thing, I think, is that this movie came out at the perfect time when if you needed special effects, they needed to be legit special effects. You couldn't rely on a computer to process and post process because then you get Alien 3. And it looks like garbage because oh. the the technology hadn't caught up with what it needed to do. You know, you got a rotoscoped alien on there crawling on the ceiling looking like a dog. And that just didn't – And you can tell it's CGI. Like, Dana, as you mentioned earlier, you can look at this movie in 4K and it looks like it was made today. I mean, to be fair also, I don't know how many other quote-unquote monster movies you have, though. That's that's, that's the one thing. So I, if there were more of them, I think somebody would have figured out how to do it. Like, again, if Nolan or I'm trying to think of some of the great other great practical effects directors uh, mm-hmm. that you did. Like if Spielberg decided to do one and you said Jurassic Park, that that has the ability to do it or that might be able to get the permission and budgeting to do it, that you may be able to play on it it's just i don't know if the appetite is there because they got kind of cliche yeah and i think maybe that's a challenge to your to your listeners is if there is a mid late 80s to early mid 90s movie that you think trumps the the special effects and aliens send it in send it in let let us let us know you know tom will relay it to me but i I think i think it'd be great to have a a little bit of feedback on that because i'm curious i'm really curious because i don't know before I lose too much of the thread, Dad, uh, what did you have down for uh, impact significance? I had an eight. And the reason, and again, I have to come at this from my point of view, which is at the time it was discussed, but it was not like, oh, my God, you've got to go and see this uh, among my friends and people that I associated with. In fact, I think most of the people that I knew who saw it saw it on HBO when it was it came out a couple of years later. Hmm. That's my memory of it. I didn't see it. I didn't have a big impact. I did go to movies at that time. I saw Full Metal Jacket that year. So there were a few films that were more well-known and that I went and made a purposeful provision to go see. And this was not necessarily on my list for that. So I marked it down. But I do know that it had a significant following among a certain group. When I was at Beloit College, which is my alma mater, 
the dorm I was in had the Beloit Science Fiction and Fantasy Club. So it was not uncommon for me to walk out of my dorm after lunch and see two guys standing in chain mail having a duel with fake swords. You, nobody does that on launch anymore? Hmm. No. I'm gonna put, not when we're not allowed outside, I'm going to put my sword away. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, um, so I do know that that group, this, you know, because they were in my dorm and I knew a lot of them and got to be friends with some of them. Uh, this was a, a, an impactful movie for them, but I think it did not have as broad a range of impact as other movies released in the 1980s or 1986. So I marked it down a bit for that. So let's come back to you right away, Dad. What did you have down for novelty? I originally thought of this solely as a sci-fi horror film. And then I thought about it as, well, as an action film. Then I thought about it again as a horror film. Then I thought about it again as it's a female lead in a action film, which really didn't happen that much, other than Alien with, again, Sigourney Weaver. Same person. (laughs) Yeah, I had a hard time thinking of another film where a female lead was the badass. Um, The only time I could think of females being, you know, in these situations was... Lindsay Wagner as the bionic woman and uh, Linda Carter as Wonder Woman on television. I couldn't think offhand of films where a female was the lead and the person that was the badass in the film. The only exception I might provide is, ironically enough, another James Cameron venture and that would be Sarah Connor from Terminator, although I would decidedly say that she's much more heroic and less uh, the bystander in Judgment Day than she is in the original, where she's just kind of running around and she's not really the badass per se, but that might be one where somebody might pick at you a little bit. Well, so just from the female standpoint of this, I marked it up a little higher than I originally did, which is I came up with an eight uh, accordingly because of the fact that Sigourney Weaver ended up becoming a hero in in this film specifically and really kind of put women in a position where they could be looked at as the true heroic character in a film. I did read a lot of contemporaneous Uh, accounts that kind of depicted her as an action hero that doesn't lose her femininity. And that's a really hard line to be able to straddle and somehow do it successfully. And I think that ended up with her getting the uh, best actress nomination for that year, particularly for an action film, let alone a science fiction action film. And Rob, what'd you have down for novelty? You know, I think that that Dana hits on, on the, the primary point there with the, you know, the, acceptance and the the okayness of the world thing like man female action here like that's cool like that that flies and i think that that's a really great legacy of this movie but also something of a novelty because it was not common at the time the other thing that i think that really pushed the boundaries of 
that this movie pushed the boundaries of is the special effects. I mean, again, we were talking about this in the last category, but I mean, you just have to think it's a quantum leap in puppetry and models for both of these films. And it's also, you know, where things that looked like full size were, were not, they were models and things like that. And I really think it's very much in the same boat as the original star Wars was with, you know, it's with the early stuff that like ILM did and things along those lines to, to create perspective and speed and distance and, and putting, you know, starships in, in there. I really think that the, the, there was definitely the aspect of, of that with like the Sulaco, which is the Marines, you know, uh, carrier ship and things like that, which hilariously looks like a giant gun, which is just, <laughs> it's freaking hilarious. Uh, but the other side of that is, you know, there's the, the, the technological side, but there's also the biological side to it. And I really think that this movie pushed the, it's not quite body horror because it's not human. It sort of is because there's that human element involved in the alien reproductive cycle, but it's, there's that body, like creature body horror with the queen and with a lot of the alien life cycle as well. So I really think that there's a lot of novelty to that still, even though it's, uh, it's predecessor, the original alien tapped on that heavily early. I think this, this takes it to uh, another level, especially with Queenie. Did I miss your score, Rob? Uh, on this, yes, I, I believe I uh, was going to render a nine and a half for this because I really think that the the feminist perspective on it is ultra important to our modern cinema environment. But also, again, the, the special effects contributions down the road. I mean, is it possible that Jurassic Park might look different because of the stuff that was, you know, the monster work that was done in Aliens? I think it might have. I definitely know that you can't get the look and feel of Judgment Day had this not existed. But I don't think there's two bigger gaps in special and visual effects than between Terminator 1 and 2 and Alien versus Aliens. I I think the way each of them looks – like if going back to our episode 38 and now thinking about them to really compare them. This feels like a modern space horror movie that I've seen other people try and recreate but never quite do successfully. And so this feels much more modern, whereas the original Alien, while it did have some good practical effects, still felt in the way it looks that it had a 2001 Space Odyssey aesthetic. Like there are certain things or how it feels, looks – and acts that it's still basing it off of an older archetype that was not necessarily new or novel. The I only... think I know, yeah. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you, but You're I just fine. had this, this brilliant thing here. It's the same thing that 28 Days Later did for zombie movies. Zombie movies were slow, methodical, alien, slow, methodical, a suspenseful thing. Mm-hmm. 28 Days Later gives you running zombies, and now the world is different. <laughs> I think okay. that that it's that gear shift of this thing is hunting us, but it's doing so slowly and methodically. Whereas with aliens, you've stirred the hornet's nest and they're pissed. Yeah, and I, I could definitely agree with that uh, analogy. The the one thing, and this is where I'm going to differ from both of you, and where I ended up at a seven point five. Ultimately is that I don't focus on any of the things that make it novel that you guys did because I'm going to have to pick on it for being the sequel. 
every point that you guys made, other than maybe the visual effects, which I give it credit for, and all of the small pieces, like doing the alien voice as a baboon shriek in post is absolute genius. But I have to knock it down, I feel, because... Yes, it's world-building, but you're world-building off of somebody else's design and previous creation. And therefore, the novelty is not quite there. I, I'm going to—basically, I'm creating almost a sequel rule in this, because I know we're going to be covering other sequels as we go along. We're going to eventually get to Star Wars and Lord of the Rings and some of that, where the look and feel is not as novel from the first movie to the second movie because you're in the world. And I don't think that's necessarily a knock against the movie so much, but it does create a points reduction as far as in my mind because it, it's not the same. You're not coming up with a completely original idea on its own. Then in that case, can a sequel be a 10 out of 10 novelty? In or my is it, mind, is it probably in not. Ooh. Unless it does something completely different where it... it so the one aspect, and this is where I would say, and again, maybe I might be a little bit lower in how I'm arguing this. When a franchise film from the first movie to the second movie changes genre, so the way that, and again, I hate to take this back but uh, to Christopher Nolan, but he is my favorite and I've, I've watched a lot of things by him. The way he describes the original Batman Begins film versus The Dark Knight. The first one is an origin film, and he treats it very much as an origin film. The second one is supposed to be a crime thriller, and then The Dark Knight Rises is a disaster film. And he literally has put those categories on all of them, and then you realize, oh yeah, okay, I see how those fit in. The Dark Knight is supposed to be his version of Batman doing Heat, Michael Mann's movie from the mid Yeah, yeah. So if you were to change, since this is the question, where the genre is completely different, like you went from the pure suspense thriller to being something completely else. So maybe another modern example would be, since I'm assuming you've at least seen the Marvel movies, the way that the first two Thor movies are completely and vastly different in tone, take, uh, writing exercise from Thor Ragnarok. Like, that one has a lot of built-in humor. It doesn't take itself too seriously. It's kind of poking fun at itself, and it seems refreshing. That I would give more points, but even then, I don't know if I could give it a full 10 on the novelty scale. It would take a lot to redo that, and I, I just don't know if I could do it. I Again, you try and take these on a case-by-case -case basis, and so I don't want to completely pigeonhole it, but right now, as it sits, I, I felt I had to take a couple of points off for that. Maybe I'm wrong. Let's just address this point. And I can't remember where I heard or saw this. I want to say it was Walter Isaacson in one of his books, uh, may have been Einstein, uh, his biography of Einstein. But he commented about the fact that there are no original ideas every idea is built off of another idea the number of times in human history where there is an original idea 
can be counted basically on your hands and toes. And from that aspect, you can't just because it's a sequel say that it lacks novelty because it builds off something else. Everything builds off something else. It If it's building on it just because of the character, I can understand. But if it's a completely different aspect of it, you could watch Aliens without ever watching Alien and enjoy the movie and not have any desire to see Alien because it's completely different, it's completely uh, separate, and it's completely distinct from the other film for the most part. It only builds upon the characters and the original premise, which for the most part, is no different than half of the movies today building on some aspect of of a of a Shakespeare play. What we're doing here, and this is why I slightly changed the what is this about to the elevator pitch, because every time a new movie is pitched in Hollywood, it's compared against something else. So while I take your point, I don't agree with it because there's a there's a difference and a distinction in this case. While the storyline may be borrowed, it's not the same as when everybody compared Avatar to being Dances with Wolves, but with blue people. Uh, like it's fern, that, fern going in space, sir. Oh, <laughs> fine. <laughs> I, I, I won't even argue the point. But in, in the original take on this, you're dealing with Ripley as a character, all of her personality has already been built. You're just giving her a slightly new motivation and a thing that's going to drive her, the loss of her daughter and saving these colonists. So it's not that you're building a completely new character. You're not really building anything new with the aliens. You're expanding on their ability to do so. And again, it's where you define something as novel and to me, that seems uh, novel is kind of more of a completely original as opposed to something that's that's borrowed or shared universe. That That's the only qualm I'm trying to get with. Not that everything has to be completely fresh or new because, yes, camera techniques are all borrowed off of each other. If Then you could say that every movie shot in digital, except the first one that was shot in digital, was a derivative on the cinematography. But that's not the that's not how I define that. I mean, that that that's trying to compare apples and oranges as far as I'm concerned in the logic of it. I'm just trying to say anything that's in a shared universe where you're not the original creator of the universe, while you may expand upon it, I'm still going to knock you points because it's a shared universe, even if you expand on it, because you don't have the full essence of creation. But actually, there is one more point that I think, Tom, you, you made earlier is that, you know, when you say that thing, you said, I believe that when things switch genres, that's somewhat uh, forgivable on your on your scale. Correct. Because if that's the case, then this movie is a prime example of that, of moving from a horror thriller to an action horror movie. It's which tremendously, which is why I did point out maybe I in making that argument knocked it too low. And I think people could pick apart that score from me i'm gonna sit it there and you know this might be a candidate again for revisit 
I also know we have to do eventually some showdown movies. Alien is currently tied with another movie, so we're going to have to create a separation between the two. So we will be comparing and contrasting two movies against each other at some point here in the near future. But, That's fun. you know, that there's a, a few ways of growing out the show that way. And I, I think by keeping it where it is, it allows people to kind of disagree with me and thus either create more conversation or not. I, I Listeners, tell tell Tom you disagree with him. Write him mail. <laughs> Write That's him fine. good mail. Write I'm, him good mail. I'm I'm willing to submit that I may be wrong on this on this one thing. On the rest of it, I'm all right. All right. <laughs> sure. All right, classicness. This is gonna be, and this is usually the most difficult category uh, to do. So I'm going to try and go point by point by point okay. and see if where you guys maybe end up or don't end up. I started off and I'm like, is there anything cringy in this? No, not really. And I really kind of had to think about it for a while before I came up with one thing. The only thing, and even in a movie where you have Marines and there's offhanded remarks and different things. The only thing I could say is, is that you might make an argument. Might. And I think this is going to grow in maybe sensitivity over the next few years as we're still trying to figure out how we collectively treat trans people. But the comment about have you ever mistaken me for a man or you know that, that sort of thing could maybe age poorly as we have that conversation. Right now, I don't have too much of an issue with it. And that's from a place of privilege as a white man. But I, I, that's the only thing I could find as far as a cringy moment where you could uh, put in the cancel culture lens. Two, jokes. You know, this movie wasn't necessarily funny, but it didn't have any jokes that like somehow aged poorly because the comedy specter has moved on from us or that just weren't funny anymore as far as that. Uh, again, when we look at the visual effects, we said that those had aged well. So right now you'd say this thing has full points almost completely, maybe a half point or a point taken off and you come about it. And I, I again, had a, a difficult time trying to place an exact score on this one. The only thing, as far as I'm concerned, that did not play well. And again, maybe you take off that half a point for the cringiness or, you know, maybe I, another half point here or there. I gave it a full point off because I just didn't like Bill Paxton's character because I thought he was so dude bro. So I went with an 8.5. Okay. Yes, the uh, I also had 8.5. And what I reduced it by is a couple of things. One, I do note the um, same points you do, but the one that stuck out to me is you couldn't just have a female badass winning. You had to bring in motherhood. You had to bring that in. That it's is like point. women can't do anything independent and unique and without also being mom. And yeah, or be doing it in, uh, or because of that, that drive, yes. that maternal instinct. Yeah. Yeah, I, I get you. I completely whiffed on that one, and I honestly, I might have probably put it lower, but 
right. Well, that's where I came with my 8.5 because I'm going, really? I mean, what aspect of Ripley's character do you find nurturing and motherly? I mean, it's it's only when they bring in Newt that I go and you see somewhat the kind of the reaction or interaction such that you feel that. But you had to go that route. And to me, that was the markdown because it wasn't enough to just have a female lead. You had to make her into she had to be a badass in part because it's the maternal instinct. Rob, what did you have down? You know, I. You guys made some excellent points that are actually making me change my score. I'm going to go yes. for, I went from a 10. I went from a 10 because I really think that this movie is classic in the, in the sense of it is the quintessential eighties action movie. It is aged tremendously. Well, mm-hmm. there are great identifiable characters. It's a ton of fun to watch, but I think Dana, you make an excellent point that there is the sort of, it's not an easy out, but like there, the, the tie to Ripley being mom is, probably more obvious than it could be. I mean, it would have almost even been more endearing, I think, had Newt latched on to Hudson or Hicks or whatever it might be, you know, dad instead, which I think would have been really interesting, you know, looking at just from that, that father daughter kind of relationship too. I think that would be interesting alteration to the movie. The one thing that I, I don't want to say I don't agree with necessarily Tom, but I think that the joke to Vasquez is, I don't think it's aged out yet. And I think that it's, it's a dumb, sorry, people who served in, who served in the Marine Corps. I have a bunch of Marine friends, but it's a dumbass Marine making a, a chauvinistic comment to another Marine. And agreed. Like on the, I feel like sometimes we read too much like, well, what if, what if Vasquez does identify as a man? Like, okay, but we're, we're painting that on her with ourselves. We don't know. And, she has, she, you know, says with her response, have you ever been mistaken for a man before? No. So I would, I would think that potentially she would identify as a woman or perhaps something else, but it's the quip back to, to her insulter there, I think gives it a, it's a moment of levity in the movie, which is nice, but it's also, I think it's read a little bit too much into, and even with the cancel culture movement and things like that, uh, going on right now and and again we want to be very cautious and careful with with how people feel about who they are and their sexuality i don't think we can make the leap to painting vasquez with any brush because we're not in her head we're not in the actress's head we're not in the character's head uh, i think it's just it's too big of a leap to say oh what if she's trans we don't know but Rob, what did you work back from a ten to you know, then? I worked back to a nine and a half because again, I think that it's just such a like if you want to show somebody a movie that is well paced, well made, and is the quintessential action film from the last thirty five years, I think you show them this. So I'm going to give you the benefit of. Going first on rewatchability, since this is one of your favorites. This is the most subjective character. Have fun. Gotcha. No problem. And, you know, this uh, in episode 38, when we referenced Alien, I think I got to a five or a six on that. This is, I think, very much different than its predecessor because 
it doesn't burn out the the scarometer, if you will. And, and when you have like Alien being a thriller, once you're scared, once you see the scene once, the novelty's lost. But I think there's this almost trigger happy euphoria, at least for me, when I watch this and I, I watch you know Ripley blowing up eggs and flamethrowing stuff and all sorts of fun things like that that just really makes me happy and uh <laughs> this is so great it's, it's so much more watchability than this predecessor it's a different genre but it's set in the same universe and i think when movies do that it's a colossal win it's the same reason that i watch die hard my favorite christmas movie every single year because it's a good movie so what is your rewatchability score then I want to say it's it's an eight. No, yep, yep, it's an eight. It really is because it's okay. it's not my go-to. Okay, but it is it's it's top five. It really is. Like if I really wanted to watch that movie, I would. If I really felt like yeah, I need an action movie that's like not John Wick. This is it. All right, Dad. What did you think? Uh, I had a six. Unfortunately, I am not a big sci-fi horror action film person and it was a well-done movie something that i could watch again and so that's why i went above the halfway mark but i am not gonna you know it may be 10 years before i would rewatch this film if it just happened to be on and i'm sitting with somebody who enjoys this film i'd sit and watch it with them so just personal taste all right so I feel like I need to explain a little bit before I go into this. This is sounds like two. A little bit. No, not that. <laughs> just, just bear with me for a second. Two. I don't want to look at the Queen Aliens fat ass anymore. <laughs> uh, two only applies to me if it's a Tom Green film. <laughs> oh. Okay, Paulie Shore. That's that a, a one. one? <laughs> All right, no. I, I think I do a disservice that this is a re-watchability category when I've only seen the film once. So I think when the horrific moments that you can't time on the first watch and they're still suspenseful and you can't – or you, you're a little bit more horrified because you can't expect it and you're not sure what's going to be coming next is different than the action sequences when – you know exactly how it's going to end, what's going to happen, all of the things that are there, and you can anticipate it a little bit more. So the scare portion of it is a little bit dulled. And to me, the part that was the problem, because, again, I don't particularly care for horror films. So this was, especially that last probably half hour, 40 minutes of the movie, was um, pretty friggin' horrifying to me uh, as far as watching this, and it was not necessarily the most enjoyable. I felt like the cliche person in the horror theater, just get the fuck out of there! Get the fuck out of there! Screaming at my television this morning. But, so I, I feel like I would be different, and I wish I could almost revisit this if I went back and watched it, but I went with a four. Again, the bellwether is five. The, like, eh, I don't care if I watch it again or not. There are some that I might not turn on because of the mood. And I think this slightly falls into that category where it's not like I'm passive. 
it's that I probably wouldn't go back and rewatch, but I think if I did, I might feel a little bit different and a little less horrified, making it a little bit easier for me personally to rewatch. So it makes the math a little bit simpler, though. So uh, just to recap on the averages, we had a 9.33 for Legacy. We had an 8.5 for Impact Significance. We had an 8.33 for Novelty. We had a 8.83 for Classicness and a 6 for Rewatchability. And we have now added in the Google users to the Rotten Tomatoes users for audience score. Google had it at a 91%. 94% for Rotten Tomatoes falls to a 9.25 then for our overall score. So that all adds up to a 50.24. Kind of surprised. It's a little lower than I thought it would be. So in relation to the previous film, and this is where this is our first sequel of what we've done so far. Where do you think higher or lower than the original? If you can remember if I remember correctly, it's lower, and it's a good chunk, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, the first film was a 51.4. Oh, maybe not. So currently, this would rank just below Taxi Driver and just ahead of American Graffiti on the current list. Good company. I yes. certainly can't argue with that. Those are both wonderful films. All right, so finally, remaining questions. I have a couple. All right, go ahead. Why the hell were they wearing camo? What, the camo is going to hide them in space? <laughs> really? Ooh, That's a, that a good mean, point. I completely whiffed on that one. I'm like, what the hell was cam- blue camo? And and that's going to hide you. Why? Just, what is it? And second, how the hell did uh, Newt survive? Everybody else who gets taken is like impregnated and, you know, she's just stuck in a web and you can pull her out. She's the only one who ever got taken by the aliens and actually was able to be saved. Okay. Did it bother anybody else? How are they able to breathe with an open airlock? immediately that was the thing i'm like this doesn't make any sense this whole sequence is kind of half ruined for me because i'm like questioning dude really like every other science fiction film has had the airlocks and the helmets and the suits but somehow you could just breathe in space (laughs) here's the other one i had which is the okay anytime you have an egg being laid that's going to hatch it has to be fertilized. Who the hell is fertilizing the queen? I mean, can you imagine the frickin' alien that's having sex with that thing? <laughs> I wonder if it's like uh, if it's like ants, though, where you have drones. That that's kind of the the thought where I would think where it's that insect type uh, reproduction where you have the queen and she's this this big bigger creature, but there are males that are about her and. I'm sure that probably in that horde of hundreds of aliens, there were probably some of these these drones, which actually I think they call the uh, I think they call the regular aliens drones in the in the universe. Okay, so, I'm yeah. just envisioning this incredibly obnoxious, horrific 
You're envisioning a king that's oh, yeah. on par with the queen. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> I don't even need it to be on par. At this point, I'm just thinking of what uh, xenomorph porn would be and how disgusting <laughs> that could potentially be. I'll take things that I don't want to hear about ever again for 600, Alex. <laughs> All right, Rob, what's your uh, remaining questions? My remaining question is, if we go back to the colony of Hadley's Hope and the planet of LV-426, when's the next batch of colonists arrive? And when they get there, is anybody left alive? And I'll let you just, I'll let you figure out who anybody might be. Like, you know Weyland-Yutani is just going to package up another box of colonists and drop them on that thing. Uh, wherever there's money to be made. My my other one, other than the final one that I'll, I'll end with, but mm-hmm. it seemed awfully convenient that the face huggers just decided to not attack for two minutes while they're pounding on the glass and trying to get the camera's attention. <laughs> That's a good point. <laughs> hey, the union says everybody is allowed a coffee break in the morning and in the afternoon. Yeah, face hugger coffee break. All right, any any other remaining questions? That's pretty good for me, man. Dad? No. All right, I will get to the final one. All right. Where do I fall on alien or aliens? And I'm going to let us all three individually answer on this one. So I'm going to have the buildup here. Rob, I'm pretty sure I know where you stand, but aliens is better than alien on your front? Correct, but if I think I'm talking about, I think Aliens, for me, is, I find that I'm watching that more. And we'll use that as a like-better measurement in this case, because I love both of the movies, but for very different reasons. Like, kids, you love them for separate reasons, but they're both awesome. But for you, man, I really think that you're going to go with the thriller over the running gun. All right, Dad? Aliens. It's much more entertaining, much more fun, uh, much more suspenseful as far as I'm concerned. Just much more enjoyable and fits within the wheelhouse of what I like. All right. I'm going to give you an answer you may not like. But Aliens is the more enjoyable, more rewatchable, but Alien is the better movie. That's exactly what I thought you were going to say. <laughs> that you were going to go with the, the original because it it's a better, I, I it think ticks more the, of your your like cultural boxes. I think it's this is elitist. All right, so maybe this is my differentiation between genres, and I favor one over the other. But I think this one's uh, when it comes to raw action, there isn't as much of a what what do I want to say. Uh, it's action movies to me most of the time feel somewhat dumbed down because of the action portion of it as opposed to I feel Alien is a little bit more high concept is developing a little bit larger of a theme as opposed to just a raw action film which is why Aliens is more rewatchable more enjoyable potentially again I haven't rewatched it so I don't know and maybe we can revisit that one category on a future podcast but so i think alien for what it was trying to tackle and the themes we talked about in episode 38 i think is just a 
better crafted, more subtle, more suspenseful movie. But Aliens is the easier, more enjoyable because of the action portion of things. Very fair. So, okay. you now have my official answer that is almost a year in the making. Yes. <laughs> it's great. I can't think of a better way to finish things off. But, Rob, before we go, where can we find you, your work, and just to keep up to date on all things Rob Conlon? Yeah, no problem. Best places to find me are at my website, recruiting-hell.com, or with my podcast on any podcast platform you could possibly imagine. I mean, we're even on ones and you know, overseas and things like that. But uh, the show is Recruiting Hell, and it's all about job hunting. If you're in the job market, swing on by, learn a thing or two. We're launching season three later this spring, and it's been a tremendous journey. I mean, literally, as we're on this recording right now, I have been podcasting for the past almost six hours which is unbelievable. And again, the amount of content that we're going to be putting out for folks who are in their job search, because again, the world is not back to normal is going to be just stupendous. And I'm looking to really expand that. If you want to connect with me, you can find me on LinkedIn. You can also follow us on Twitter at recruiting hell, uh, recruiting underscore hell. And of course, Instagram recruiting hell podcast. Thank you very much. No buddy. Problem. And Thank I will you, make a personal shout out. Uh, I've said it before, but Recruiting Hell podcast is definitely worth the listen. I say that not only as a listener and subscriber myself, but one of its key constituents for a while last year. Absolutely. And if you haven't heard the season three trailer I dropped today, you should. I will be soon. Good deal. Well, this is my life. It always will be. There's nothing else. Just us and the microphones and those wonderful people out there in the dark. All right, Mr. DeMille, I'm ready for my close-up. Next week, we will be doing The Quiet Man, currently streaming on Prime Video, so you won't want to miss that one. Please like, subscribe, review, or whatever on whichever platform you have so that more of you can join in on our fun. You can also email the show at greatestalltimemoviepodcast at gmail.com, find us on Instagram at gmotepodcast, or find Dana or I on Twitter at tj3duncan or at danawduncan. The Greatest Movie of All Time is a production of Ronnie Duncan Studios. Our show is mixed, edited, and written by Thomas Duncan. Our music is thanks to Purple Planet Music. Our technical provider and distributor is Anchor FM.